This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Reality, Morality, and Illusion, recorded October 15, 1995, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Mystics have good news and bad news. They spend a lot of time doing these practices like meditation, practicing moral precepts, making inquiry, practices of devotion, and they start having insights. Insights, a series of insights that lead up to what is usually called enlightenment or realization, or as we call it, gnosis, a Greek word, meaning direct, immediate knowledge of the divine. And then they report back what uh, they try to report back what they've discovered they all say to begin with by the way this is really cannot be put into words but we're trying to give you some idea of it uh, to point to a direction if you're interested in taking this path uh, a direction which will lead you to the same insights and ultimately the same realization and so the reports form this body of what we call mystical literature and They've got good news and they've got bad news. At least that's the way most people take it. So first I'm going to give you the bad news. You and the world you live in don't really exist. Let's check this out. Here's the Buddhist Lakvatara Sutra. The disciple must get into the habit of looking at things truthfully. He must recognize the fact that the world has no self-nature, that it is like a passing cloud, like the moon reflected in the ocean, like a vision, a mirage, a dream. Now, I'll just point out one little thing about this. Notice that this is a really an instruction for practice. It's not a it's not a result of philosophy. It's not an argument to convince you. He says, the disciple must get into the habit of looking at things truly. So it, it's an instruction of a way of looking. Here's Shankara, one of the great Hindu uh, mystics. He says, the apparent world is caused by our imagination in its ignorance. It is not real. It is like a passing dream. That is how a man should practice spiritual discrimination and free himself from his consciousness of this objective world. That's a Buddhist, a Hindu. And notice again, this is an instruction for a practice here. Now, many people think that this teaching, that the world is somehow an illusion, it's like a dream or mirage, it's just an Eastern teaching. That's not true. It's more prominent in overall Eastern religions, but the mystics of Western, uh, Western religions, and I'm, I'm talking about the Abrahamic family, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, all agree. Here's some little examples. Here's the great Jewish Kabbalist Abu Lafi. All is imagination and mockery, like a dream which passes by in the night. Here's the Christian mystic, Simone Weil. We live in a world of unreality and dreams. And here's one of my favorite ways of expressing this. This is the uh, Sufi poet Rumi from the Islamic tradition. He says, A nothing has fallen in love with a nothing. A nothing at all has waylaid a nothing at all. What he means is, you are actually nothing, and the world is actually nothing, and you've fallen in love with nothing. And then the world is nothing, and nothing at all, and that's waylaid you, who are nothing at all. So this teaching that the world is somehow imaginary, uh, it's a product of our imagination and so forth, is not just an Eastern teaching. It's, it's in the East, and it's in the West, and there's a good reason for it. It's because all these different mystics from all these different traditions saw the same truth in that realization. Now, notice, you don't have to believe this. I'm not saying that you should believe all this. I'm just, uh, I'm just transmitting to you the reports of these various mystics from all these various traditions, different times, different places, different cultures. That is what they say, regardless of whether you believe it or not. Now, to many people, this is very bad news for several reasons. Uh, some of the most prominent are when they 
think of it personally, in terms of their personal lives, it seems to devalue your life. It seems to devalue all your goals and your projects, all your plans for the future. You're going to become happy, your job, your career, your relationships and everything. To say it's all just imaginary, it's all just illusion, seems to just devalue all that. And then socially, it seems to undercut morality. So why should we behave morally if it's just all imaginary, if it's just all illusion? Well, we're going to take those two objections up in a minute, but this very same teaching for mystics is good news. And we might try and look at the good side of it as well. And that is the fact that the world is imaginary and unreal. Now, this is the world that most people experience, by the way. Also means that suffering and death and the other evils that are endemic in this world are also imaginary and unreal. For instance, Buddhist, the Buddhist master, Bokar Rinpoche, he explains it this way. He says, what is suffering and what is death? In reality, they, have, they do not have any existence. They appear within the framework of the manifestations produced by the mind wrapped up in an illusion, just as they appear in a dream. In the emptiness of mind, there is no death. No one dies. There is no suffering and no fear. That's a Buddhist. Here's what Shankara says. There is neither birth nor death, either bound or aspiring soul, neither liberated soul nor seeker after liberation. This is the ultimate and absolute truth. In other words, now he's giving you uh, mystical teachings are in uh, gradations as they approach the ultimate. They can't actually say the ultimate. But he's, he's indicating here, he's giving you the highest teaching. There actually is no one to be born to die. This is what Jesus, from a mystic's point of view, meant when he said, Verily I say unto you, if a man puts my sayings into practice, he shall never see death. If you practice Jesus' teachings, if you learn the truth that sets you free, you'll see there is no death. You'll never, you'll never see any death. What's more, the fact that self and world is an illusion doesn't mean that behind it is a nothing, like a physical vacuum. Now, many people hear this teaching, oh, it's all an illusion, and they think, well, then what is there? There's just sort of a big black physical, you know, like a black hole or something. But all the mystics testify to the fact that there is a reality. A divine reality, if you like, and this is an analogy, standing behind or underneath or underlying this deluded experience. A reality which is often called God in the West, Allah, Brahman, the Tao, the Buddha nature, whatever name various traditions give it. A reality to which we can awaken. We don't have to be stuck in the delusion. And of course, this is what a mystical path is all about, how to awaken to this. Jesus called it the kingdom of the Father. Uh, and he expressed it this way in the Gospel of Thomas. The kingdom of the Father is spread upon the earth, and men do not see it. Well, you check this out in your own experience in terms of... You may not know whether the kingdom of the Father is there, but when you look around, normally, you don't see the kingdom of the Father. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. So something, as he's indicating, in our experience that veils this reality from us. Here's Lali Shwari. She was a great uh, saint of Kashmir. She wrote, When the mirror of my mind became clear, I realized the fundamental principle, and this non-dual knowledge completely destroyed all thought of you and I. I came to know that this entire world is not different from God. Now again, she's indicating that before she went on a spiritual path, her mind was clouded. It wasn't clear. She didn't see things clearly. It was veiled. But as, as a result of doing these practices, her mind became clear. 
And instead of seeing a world of lots of different objects, she saw that it's all God. There's nothing but God. Here's uh, Tsang San, who was a, a great uh, Chinese uh, Zen patriarch. If the mind makes no discriminations, the 10,000 things are as they are, of a single essence. To understand the mystery of this one essence is to be released from all entanglements. When all things are seen equally, the timeless self-essence is reached. He gives you a little idea of what it is that has to be cleared from the mind. This discriminating of things, uh, of objects. She said mind, when her mind was cleared, she saw this non-dual way. He's saying, well, it's our minds that divide up the world into different objects and things. And if we cease doing this, if we cease doing something, it'll just all become clear to us. Again, Shankara says, and this is a famous metaphor from the Hindu tradition, the Atman is the ground of reality. Atman's another word for this divine reality. The Atman is the ground of reality. You may mistake a rope for a snake if you are deluded. But when the delusion passes, you realize that the imagined snake was none other than the rope. So also this universe is none other than the Atman. Let's, let's go into that one for a minute. Actually, this, this precise uh, thing happened to me when I was living on the desert in Lone Pine. It wasn't a rope, but it was a piece of sage. Uh, maybe has anybody else had an experience like this? Maybe not a rope and a snake, but you maybe uh, were walking down the street and there was, I don't know, a garbage can and you mistook it for somebody crouching behind a car or something like that. In my experience, this is what happened. I set out, I had a little cabin and I was visiting a house up on the hill. And there was one road that led right down and then there was another road that goes all the way around. And it was night, moonlit night, and I set off down the road, and it's, this is on the desert, there are all these sage, it's just nothing but sage, basically. And right off the path, there was this snake, a rattlesnake, it's rattlesnake country. There was this snake there. Now I stopped, and my heart started to do, 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 a little bit, you know. And I thought, well, now what am I going to do? And I thought, uh, I don't want to cut off into the sagebrush, if there's one rattlesnake right there, I'm much better be on an open path than wandering through the sage. Am I going to go all the way back and take the long route around? Should I get a, a, you know, a stone or something and try and roll it down and shoot this thing off the path? My mind started working. All these reactions are happening, and I'm seeing a snake. And I thought, well, I'll go along a little bit farther and see what happens, and I'll make a lot of noise. And I, so I started walking really loudly and, you know, kicking up the sand as I walked. And I got closer, the snake didn't move, and I got closer, and suddenly, oh, it's a piece of sage, an old piece of sage trunk. Now, this is, this is a very good analogy, because this is a very good analogy for what mystical awakening is. That was an illusion. There was no snake there. And yet I saw a snake. I experienced the snake. And I, it produced all the reactions of a real snake. I lived for a moment in a world where a dangerous rattlesnake was blocking my path. And it caused me some suffering. And the solution to the problem turned out not to be to get rid of the snake. The solution to the problem turned out to be the snake was not a snake after all. It was just a rope. This is a, a, one of the most uh, common analogies for mystical awakening and for what this means that the world is all illusion. It doesn't mean when the snake disappears, there's suddenly a black hole. There's something else to see. It, it ain't a rope. And it is impossible to describe because it's non-dual. Every time the mind wants to describe something, it has to break it up. But this is the testimony of all the mystics. There is something beyond this illusion. And this something is, as Bokar Rinpoche said, in that there's no death, there's no suffering. It's, it's the kingdom of the Father. It's perfection. That's why Eddie Hillisom, another great mystic from this century, she writes, people sometimes say, you must try to make the best of things. I never have the feeling that I have got to make the best of things. Everything is fine just the way it is. And then people hear a teaching like that. What do you mean everything's fine just the way it is, you know? 
What about mugging and what about murder and what about Bosnia and leukemia and uh, uh, war and what about the Holocaust and Auschwitz? How can you say everything's fine just the way it is? She wrote this from a Nazi concentration camp, in a Nazi concentration camp, and she died in Auschwitz. This is teaching's radical now. She means this. It's not that she can't recognize in a relative sense good and evil and so forth, but fundamentally underneath all this, she sees through this illusion and everything is fine just the way it is. Now, surprisingly, many people take this as bad news too, uh, that there is no suffering, there is no death. Because again, personally, it seems to devalue their lives. Because they're, oh, our lives are built on, on, predicated on suffering and then trying to be happy. If you're, if there's no suffering, you're already happy. So why would you do anything? And so all the projects and goals and everything, all the ways we struggle to be happy and all that, this seems to, uh, undercut all that. And then socially, for the very same reason, it seems to undercut morality. What happens to right and wrong if everything's already perfect? If, there, if, it's, if it's all non-dual, if there are no discriminations. So why should we refrain from killing anybody, for instance? No one really dies. So let's take these two uh, uh, objections that people have when they first hear these teachings and, and see what the mystics, how mystics would respond to them. So the first question is, uh, it's true from a mystic's point of view, a life devoted to doing nothing but pursuing worldly things is devalued. It is a wasted life. It's a wasted life because, from a mystic's point of view, human life is an incredibly precious opportunity. This is expressed in the East as uh, in, a, in a cosmology which sees life as being constantly reborn. It sort of it takes the image of nature or the seasons where uh, uh, the plants die, the fall, and then pop up again in spring and so forth. And so uh, our lives are like this. And in the East they say only human beings can become enlightened, can actually realize this divinity. And so in a certain sense... Uh, it's true that the cosmos is uh, centered, focused around human beings. This is God realizing God, and this is the opportunity. And they say, uh, I've heard the Tibetans describe the, the rarity of having a human birth, because, you know, in, in the Eastern traditions you die and then you're reborn. Everybody assumes, well, I'm going to be reborn again. I'm in, next I'm going to be reborn as a prince or princess or something. But, you know, it, actually from their point of view, it's very rare opportunity to get a human birth. And the rarity is described this way. It's as though you threw a inflated inner tube into the middle of the ocean and asked yourself, what are the chances a sea turtle is going to rise in that inner tube? Not great. This is your, this is, uh, how precious this, your life right now is in that, in that view. In the Western view, it's even more precious because you only go around once. To be born a human being is to be born with a soul. Animals don't have souls in Western cosmological view. And only a soul can have attained this vision of God, which is eternal life. Now, these are just cosmological ways of framing this. I'm not saying these cosmologies are ultimately true. In fact, these cosmologies are ultimately illusions. That's the whole point from mystic's point of view. But these are ways of expressing this incredible preciousness. The meaning of life is to uh, awaken to this divine mystery. So if you spend your whole life <laughs> completely ignoring it and following after things of the world... Uh, it is, from that point of view, a wasted life. Ananda Moyamai, who was another great, she was a great contemporary mystic from India, she writes, God alone is truth, happiness, bliss. Do not set your hopes on anything except supreme beatitude. Naught else exists. What seems to exist outside of it is merely illusion. Try to find your true self. So, if this uh, becomes the priority in your life. And this is what really going on a spiritual path means. Then 
suddenly you have a motive for everything else you do. The motive isn't to uh, attain happiness from acquiring worldly things to get, uh, you know, uh, ever uh, the latest model of a car or, or to move up from one house to another to find you live in uh, uh, Beverly Hills or something. You eat to keep this body going because this body is your, your opportunity. You go to work to pay the rent because this is your space, your sacred space to do your spiritual practice, your home. Once you have a priority, everything else will fall into place. And it doesn't mean you don't do anything else. You do all these things, but your motive starts to shift. The reason you're doing things, then, is no longer because you're looking for happiness in, in worldly things. Now you're beginning to use the world spiritually. You're beginning to convert your everyday life into the spiritual path. From a mystic's point of view, if all you're interested in is just uh, uh, trying to become happy through acquiring worldly things, it's, it is a wasted life. But if you use worldly things for your spiritual path, that's what lends them value. That's what gives them value. As to the second question concerning morality, it's true that in the ultimate sense, in the non-dual sense, this reality transcends all distinctions, including the distinction between good and evil. So this is what Gandhi said about it. Good and evil is our own imperfect language. God is above both good and evil. Now here is a man who dedicated his life, quote, to fighting evil in the world, and yet he recognized that this is just part of our imagination, our language, our thoughts that we project onto the world, that the ultimate reality is above good and evil. I purposely quoted Gandhi here because here is a man who was a model of social action and moral action. And in fact, if we believe things are truly good and evil, if we really believe that, this forms a primary component of our delusion. And this is uh, indicated through in the myth of the Garden of Eden, if you remember. Adam, Adam and Eve are living in paradise. <laughs> Interpreted mystically, they're seeing reality as it truly is. All of one essence. Everything is God. And then what precipitates the fall? Well, they disobey God, that's true. So there's this element of will, of a personal now, the sense of an I in there. But then the next thing they do is they go and they eat, what? The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now they start seeing the world suddenly as good and evil. And they take that to be reality. Down they go. What happens as a result of the fall? Suffering and death come into the world from this. Again, a mythic way of describing this uh, dynamic, uh, how delusion works. And yet, after having said that, all mystics teach morality is indispensable to a spiritual path. Indispensable. Fundamental in walking a spiritual path. Almost all of Jesus' teachings are moral precepts, how to act selflessly in the world. The whole Mayana tradition is this tremendous emphasis on, on selfless compassion for others. The great Bodhisattva vow is not to, is to even give up entering nirvana until all beings have entered nirvana. You've got to be the last one to, to get off this wheel of suffering in, in their terms. All traditions have taught this. Every single uh, surah, chapter of the Quran opens with Allah, the compassionate, the merciful. Allah, the compassionate, the merciful. You're supposed to imitate Allah, the compassionate and the merciful. So, why? Well, how can we explain this? I mean, why should mystics teach morality if they, on one hand, say, actually, it's uh, part of illusion? Well, first of all, I think we have to, and this is very important, sort out the difference between a secular view of morality and a mystical view of morality. And there's a big difference, and we shouldn't confuse them. Most secular arguments for morality are based on selfishness. And we all know them. I'm just going to refresh your memory with a few, and, and they, get, they can get very sophisticated. 
But they're things like, well, don't kill anyone because somebody might kill you. Well, we stop killing, then nobody will kill you, right? Don't cut down uh, the old growth trees because we all depend on this environment. And so we need a healthy environment, and if we cut down the trees, we'll all die. Something will happen. You know, again, it's communal, but it's you. It's, it arouses your fear of, my God, what's going to happen to me? Sometimes the franchise is extended a little bit. Well, if we all cherish each other in the environment, then the world will become a better place and we'll all become happy. So that's not, it's not tied to you personally. You know, you want for others what you want for yourself. And there's often an appeal to children. And yet, in a, in a funny way, it's our children. Well, you know, what about our children? What sort of world are we leaving them? And that's an extension of self. From a mystic's point of view, this is actually futile. It's futile in two ways. These arguments are futile because, as we all know, these, even as rational as they may be, people are born so selfish that they ignore them when push comes to shove, when there's immediate gain to be had. This isn't a question of blame. It's a question of facing reality. People who are deluded, who are selfish because of their delusion, aren't, uh, aren't changed by just these rational, ethical kinds of arguments. But it's also futile in a deeper way. It's a, a futile way to approach things from a mystic's point of view. From a mystic's point of view, the, one of the aspects, one of the clues that this is all uh, imaginary, an illusion, like a dream, like a passing cloud, like a mirage, is that it's all impermanent. It's all ever-shifting. There's nothing in this ever to grab onto. And so when we uh, make the focus of our moral efforts to build a sort of an ideal world, even if we could achieve that, in the very next instant, it, it would all start to come unraveled. I often think about it. Supposing there was some world government, and by a stroke of uh, legislation, you could redistribute all the wealth. So we took all the existing wealth, and we gave it to all the people in the world, all the people in Africa and uh, Brazil, and they didn't have more than we in the Western countries. We just all redistributed equally. Great. But we haven't touched the problem. People are selfish and they're greedy. And they're also because of that gullible. The very next instant, somebody's going to cheat their neighbor and have a little more. And then they're going to use that to get a little more. And da-da-da-da-da. And you'll be right back to this situation. So it's a pipe dream. It's not morality based on reality. It's morality based on uh, a... A, a, a delusion on top of delusion. <clears throat> so what is the purpose of morality from mystic's point of view? It's not to improve yourself or the world. It is to overcome the delusion that there is a self and world. Sounds kind of paradoxical, doesn't it? Jesus said, if you remember, if you follow my teachings, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And in the context, he's talking about sin and its consequences. Sin, the consequences of sin, are suffering and death. Sin, that original sin, that delusion, that veil that fell at the Garden of Eden. The purpose of knowing the truth is to become free from this delusion and its suffering and its death. He didn't say, if you follow my teachings, then the world will be a better place to live in. A lot of modern scholars, looking back at Jesus through the filter of our times, without any spiritual understanding, try to project that on, on Jesus. He was a social revolutionary, and really what his message was all about is how we're going to have an, an equal society, and, and there's going to be equal distribution of wealth and things like that. This is all 20th century reading into that situation, and because there's no understanding from a materialist point of view of what he could possibly be talking about. But if you see it in a mystical context, it makes perfect sense. He's talking about what every mystic has always talked about. Now, it's also true that initially, the, the mystic's uh, message appeals to someone's selfishness. And in fact, we all, even if we go on a spiritual path, we go 
still in delusion for selfish reasons. I want to be free from suffering and death. But mystics say specifically in terms of morality, there is a law, a spiritual law, and this morality is based on this spiritual law. And we can say it quite succinctly. The more selfishly you behave, the stronger your delusion of self will become, and the more you will suffer. There's a wonderful line in the Bible that even says it more, more succinctly and more poetically. As you sow, so shall you reap. The more we practice selfishness, the more, the, the more there's a self there. Conversely, the more you behave selflessly, the weaker that delusion becomes and the happier you start to be. And this, you don't have to wait until the ultimate enlightenment to find that this is true. Now, it's important to notice, this law is a law of delusion. It applies to delusion. In reality, there is no self. It only applies as long as you're deluded. But delusion has a mechanism of its own. As long as there is the experience of I and other, self and world, birth and death, then these laws apply within that domain. So, we can look at the morality, mystical morality, spiritual morality, unlike secular morality, is not about improving the world or yourself. It's a ladder by which you climb out of delusion, out of self-ishness, into selflessness. And so this ladder straddles two worlds, if you like. And that's not an ultimate teaching, because ultimately there isn't even a distinction between these two worlds. But as, a, as an image, it straddles two worlds. And this gives it some interesting properties. In one sense, morality is absolute. In relation to the goal. But it's relative in the application. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I'm going to ask a question. Anybody wants to answer. Uh, when I leave here and I go down the street here, when I get to the corner, which, which way should I turn? Right? There's no answer. Depends on where I want to go, right? I can't answer that question until I know where I want to go. So... If I say, I want to go to Portland, so now when I get down to the corner, which way should I turn? <laughs> All right. Right. And then he's going to tell me, then you go to, and you make a left, and you get on 7th, and you go out to that, and you go out to the thing, and you get on the uh, freeway headed north to Portland, right? Unless you want to take 99. Aha! Uh -huh. Another way to get to Portland. Now, doesn't mean the other way is wrong, but we can have an argument about which is the best way. Supposing I want to get there quickly. So I say, I'm really in a rush. And Mike would say, take, take five. It's much, really much quicker. It's not a scenic. You don't get to see as much, but it's much quicker, right? So we can have discussions about that. What's the most efficient way, the best way? But notice there are also wrong answers. Because if Mike tells me, oh, well, you go, yeah, you turn right, then you get on Franklin, and you get down. When you get to I-5, go south and follow the signs to Roseburg. You would say, no, Mike, that's wrong. This, there are wrong answers here. So it is relative in the application here, but it's not ultimately relative the way when you try to argue from a secular point of view the way it ends up. Now, it's also uh, relative in the sense that because this ladder is anchored in this fundamental principle of selflessness, different contexts will call for contradictory actions because in one context, what you might do might be selfish. In another context, it might be selfless. And I'll give you, again, a kind of obvious example. But in generally speaking... It is more selfless to be honest. And you can examine your own experience. 
Most of the time when you lie, it's for some selfish reason. You're trying to protect yourself, you're trying to get something, you're trying to cover something up or whatever. And most of the time when you tell the truth, it is an expression of selflessness. And often it's actually of benefit to other people because we depend on each other for uh, honest answers usually. But there are situations where even that, uh, that moral precept, to be honest, would be selfish and would be wrong. And so, for instance, if uh, uh, we were hiding Jews in our attic during uh, the, uh, the reign of the Nazis, and the Gestapo comes and knocks on the door and says, have you seen any Jews lately? And I say, I cannot tell a lie. Yes, there are Jews in my attic. That's wrong. Look, I haven't seen any Jews. Of course not. Oh, thank you. Go on to the next house. The person who has lied has acted more selflessly, has taken a tremendous risk, because if they get caught, they're off to the concentration camps with the Jews. Where the person who says, oh, well, actually, there are Jews in, in the attic, and my family's forced me to take them in, but I'm really on your side. Oh, you're telling the truth, and you're going to get uh, you know, a medal from the Nazis, and your family will go. So this is the relativity of the application, but it is not absolutely relative. It's not that, well, ultimately we can't really say what's better, Nazism or democracy or, do you know what I mean? It's not like, well, we're all equals and we all have our own opinions. And so, you know, from a mystical point of view, that's not true. We can say definitely something is wrong when it creates suffering for ourselves and for others. And we can see also the connection between acting selflessly and the reality, as mystics see it. There is no self. To operate as though there was a self is not realistic. It's no wonder people suffer. Meister Eckhart expressed this very nicely, a Christian mystic. He said, you know, everything is created out of nothing. And he says, and the more you run after created things, you're running after nothing. And so you never get anything. So no wonder you suffer. No wonder your life is full of desolation and misery and so forth. It's, again, these aren't, the moral law is not, uh, from mystic's point of view, something some arbitrary big daddy in the sky handed down and said, now you do this or you're going to hell. You're going to suffer because that's the way things are, not because any big daddies made you suffer. The law of karma is expressed in the East has much less confusion about that. But even the Christian mystics will say, uh, like Catherine of Genoa, the door of paradise stands open to anybody who wants to enter it. God doesn't send you to hell. We put ourselves in hell through our selfishness, ultimately. And our hell doesn't we don't have to envision it, again, someplace else. Uh, we make our own hells, whether we're in this life or another life. <clears throat> so to act selflessly is simply to be in conformity to reality. It's to be in harmony with the Tao, as the Chinese would put it. It's to be doing God's will, as, as Christians are, would put it. Now, because this ladder straddles two worlds and has these peculiar sort of paradoxical properties, there isn't a solution, an intellectual solution to moral problems. They embroil this very paradox that we talked about. As spiritual practitioners, we want to act selflessly because we want to end our suffering and finally death. And this paradoxical nature of this morality manifests in concrete situations in very practical ways. For instance, in terms of your personal life. Um, who has an example of treating someone well and then being mistreated by them? There's the secretary at work um, whom I always try to greet with a smile and, and say, hi, how you doing? There's this something about her nature, the way she lives life, where she's, it's so difficult for her to relate with people, you know, to give a smile back, to say hello, and she often just stares blankly, and then I feel like I've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe I shouldn't say anything. Maybe I should look the other way when I come in. 
Yeah, I mean, this is, this is common, isn't it? What happens and how do we usually react? We get defensive, right? We think maybe we've done something wrong. We get maybe a little guilty. Well, maybe we feel defeated, but that would feel like a failure. Sometimes we respond saying, that's it. No more Mr. Nice Guy. I'm through trying to treat people well. I lent that person five bucks. They never even said thank you. They never repaid me. See if I'll ever do them a favor again, right? Is that a typical one way of responding? Sometimes our suffering comes from a social injustice that is done or perceived. Let's take the example. Again, was not here, but this, uh, this logging of old growth trees. If you're an environmentalist or a supporter of the environmental movement, there's been long battles in the courts to halt this and, and bitter fights and money spent and so forth. And then a, a, apparently a deal was struck with the administration that seemed to be a reasonable compromise for everybody. And then uh, the new regime gets in and they just bypass all this. They just, you know, make exceptions to all this legislation and start cutting again. I know a lot of people react with anger, frustration, despair, sometimes with hostility. I reacted this uh, after I came back from Vietnam and to the Vietnam War. I was part of the anti-war movement and the protest, you know. Uh, when, when Nixon bombed Cambodia, at least those of us who are so opposed to the war were just absolutely outraged, a tremendous amount of suffering, sense of betrayal and, uh, you know, going against the, what was seemed to us obvious, the people's will, and was obviously unjust, unjust. But from, a, from the point of view of practicing spiritual morality in either of these situations, one, a personal situation where you try to be nice to somebody in your everyday life, or whether you're involved in some social action, is to see that situation itself as your teacher. To learn from the situation, and I gotta tell you this, you will learn more from a situation where you are mistreated or where your social efforts fail. And what do we learn? If we watch and observe ourselves closely in these situations, we learn that our suffering is not the result of an insult that someone throws at you. But if you watch carefully, you have an expectation that events will be different. That you have done something nice and you will get rewarded for it. That you have fought the noble cause and that you will uh, win. You have been on the side of right and justice and so forth in the anti-war movement and the environmental movement and so forth, and that ultimately the universe will reward you. It is your attachment to the expectation that reality will turn out to fulfill your wishes, be the way you want it to be. Manifest your fantasies. And it doesn't. And that's why you suffer. Now, don't again, don't take my word for this. You watch closely. It's a subtle thing to watch about your mind and how it works and how it sets up expectations and how it secretly wants rewards. And when it doesn't get it, it gets pissed. This is why the Bhagavad Gita gives us the this central teaching, particularly aimed at those who are remaining active in the world. And not just staying put as householders, but taking an active role in the world. The disciplined man, that's the spiritually disciplined person, the yogi, the disciplined man gives up the results of his acts and attains perfect peace. The undisciplined man acts out of desire. He is attached to the results and his acts imprison him. Therefore, do the work that is required, always free from attachments. Acting in that freedom, man reaches the highest. Do you understand this? It's to act 
to fulfill your duties, your responsibilities, your social responsibilities, your responsibilities to your families, to your friends, to society at large, to causes and so forth, to act. But always be on guard. Watch your attachments to the fruit, the result. You're wanting it to be the way you want it to be. And not, and when it doesn't happen, it's constant suffering, constant suffering. The same teaching as in other traditions. Here's Hui Ning, the founder of Zen Buddhism. We refrain from all evil. We do all acts with no attachment to the fruit of such action. In the, in all the three Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and uh, Islam, this is what the prayer, thy will be done, not my will. Which, if, if you relate to those traditions in, uh, traditions in any way, is a very good prayer to use before you go into any demonstration, uh, to, to protest the, uh, cutting down of trees, before you, uh, go in in the morning and you try and decide whether you should smile at this woman or not. You know what I mean? It's a little prayer to say, thy will be done, not my will be done. And you go and you act. You have the right to act. You have a duty to act. And you go smile. But whether she returns it or not, that's not up to you. You're not God. Whether the loggers will actually stop cutting the trees, that's not up to you. You're not God, you in this form. You have a right to the action, but not its fruit. It's a crucial, crucial teaching in, in taking everyday life as a spiritual path. Now, the teaching is phrased here, you have a right to the action, not the fruit. It'd be better to put, <clears throat> you will act, you can't avoid acting, living in this world, and you ain't going to get the fruit you want. Mm -hmm. Sometimes things will work out, sometimes they won't. I want to read you uh, a little paragraph of Gandhi on this, because this was the primary principle of all of Gandhi's action. This is what he put into practice. He writes about the karma yogi. He was a karma yogi. Karma means action in Sanskrit, it's a Hindu term. A karma yogi is one who takes as their spiritual path action, in his case, social action. And this is what Gandhi wrote about the karma yogi. He is a devotee who is jealous of none, who is a fount of mercy, who is without egotism, who is selfless, who treats alike cold and heat, happiness and misery, who is ever forgiving, who is always contented, whose resolutions are firm, who has dedicated mind and soul to God, who causes no dread, who is not afraid of others, who is free from exaltation, sorrow and fear, who is pure, who is versed in action, yet remains unaffected by it, who renounces all fruit, good or bad. And I... I couldn't find it, but I read elsewhere, and I can only paraphrase it. He once said, he described it this way. In every situation, I do what I can see is the right thing to do. And remember, this is the relativity of the application. I do what the best I can, what to me seems to be the most selfless thing, what seems to be most for the good of the whole. But the result is up to God. Whether it comes out the way I want it to or not. And I don't worry about that. In the next moment, I'm in a new situation that requires a new bit of action, and so I do the best I can again. And I don't worry about it. The result. And the next situation again. And I don't worry about the result. I'm not attached to the expectation things will work out the way I want them to work out. So it's a, it's a practice here. It's something you can't, again, just decide to do. But you can watch your own actions. You can watch yourself. You can test this teaching. Is it true that the suffering comes from my expectation? And then you can begin to give up this, this romantic idea that you're ever going to improve the world, make it a better place and all that. Let that go. But what you can do is start saying, oh, I see the cause of my suffering. It's my expectation. Let that go. You can let that go. Let it go and be free and act.
Now, this does not mean, and he does not mean, that we don't, in a practical sense, learn from results. You go in, you smile, and you smile, and uh, uh, I don't know, one day somebody tells you, you know, the poor woman, her face is paralyzed, that's why she can't. She feels terrible when people smile at her. She'd much rather you sing a little song or something, you know. So you learn from that. Oh, I've been mistaken all along, and you change. We learn from our experience. But in that learning, there's no suffering. There's no attachment. There's no feeling of failure or disappointment or anything else. In fact, that learn, that kind of learning itself is quite joyful. Oh, is it discover something new? Oh, and try something new out. That's all part of the play. We love God. Now, I want to conclude here by saying, first of all, these are advanced teachings. I mean, they're considered in mystical traditions, these teachings about the uh, true nature of the world, the illusionary nature. And when we take up the question of morality in relation to them, we start saying things like, well, ultimately, reality is beyond even distinctions of good and evil. That's been considered in many traditions, not only advanced, but dangerous teachings. Very easily misinterpreted. <coughs> People go out and say, well, my guru said, uh, you know, uh, God's beyond uh, good and evil. I can do whatever I want. That in point of fact, if you think about it, you can never make an argument to justify anything from these teachings because they are, the knife will always cut both ways. So if you say, uh, well, I'm enlightened and I can, I'm beyond good and evil now, I can kill people, uh, the response to that of any community is says, well, that's fine, but we're not enlightened, we're deluded, so we're going to punish you because we still live under the law of good and evil. And if somebody, uh, if somebody says, well, but, uh, this is, this is wrong, uh, you know, you shouldn't execute me, uh, you say, well, what are you worried about? You don't exist. If you say, if you want to make a comment on the social situation out there and you say, well, it's God's will that the loggers cut these trees, well, it's also God's will that people protest the logging of cutting these trees. So, you know, there is no, uh, you cannot sort that out through this sort of argument. It has nothing to do with that. In the, law, in the world of delusion, good and evil apply. You cannot bring that principle and try to apply it in a relative way. But you do have to see that this, that this morality is anchored in this absolute, which is beyond that. So this can never be used really to justify any sort of evil behavior. It's a pointing and it's a climbing. And these teachings, because they've been considered advanced, you know, it's not easy to, to understand them, certainly on a first hearing. They've been withheld in many traditions. You don't get these teachings right away. This isn't what you get taught in, uh, you know, even in the East. You go to a Buddhist temple for the masses, they don't give you these high teachings. You, you pray to the uh, Bodhisattva of compassion when your children get sick. I've been to them. It's very much like a Catholic church in the Mediterranean and light candles and so forth. And furthermore, these are not results of philosophical argument. It's interesting to argue and discuss them, and arguments can be made to help point you to see, for instance, that the world is illusion and so forth, but ultimately it's not a question of philosophy. It cannot be decided by philosophy. This is why Shankara said, From the lips of your teacher you have learned of the truth of Brahman as it is revealed in the scriptures. Now you must realize that truth directly and immediately. Then only will your heart be free from any doubt. On a spiritual path, you're going to doubt this. It sounds, you know, wild. Completely radical, completely different from the way you experience things. Even if right now you're intrigued a little bit, or if you've done some practice, when you walk out there, you know, by this evening when you're watching television or something, say, ah, what is all that mysticism about? So the only way to verify any of this is ultimately by yourself. Do the practices. That's what Jesus said. If you if you do my practices that I've given you here, I spent you know three years giving you all these practices. If you do the practices, you'll know the truth. You won't don't just believe me. Eternal life is to know God, not to believe in God. As Augustine points out, that's what Jesus says, to know. And the word is gnosis. Greek gospels were written, I mean, the gospels originally were written in Greek. 
So let me conclude by uh, just trying to give some uh, practical advice here. Three little points. If you're a beginner, if all this is sort of new to you and so forth, I wouldn't worry too much about this whole teaching about the world as illusion and so forth. You cannot figure it out intellectually. If you take up practices of meditation and if you treat moral precepts as spiritual practices, as experiments designed to show you something and not as, uh, as uh, you know, ways to make yourself into a saint, you will start having insights yourself that will reveal this to you you will start to come to experience the world more and more as a illusion in that sense, as a passing cloud, as a mirage. You'll start to watch more closely. You'll see how every moment of your experience, things arise and crumble, arise and crumble. And it won't be some horrifying nihilistic experience. Actually, it's very beautiful. Instead of the world being solid, massive objects all stuck out there, it starts to be flow. It starts to become more like a symphony, a piece of music where everything flows together. And you wouldn't want, in the middle of a symphony, people don't get up and want to grab that note and say, oh, oh, a horn player, please stop. No, don't let go of that note. Keep that note going. You get more relaxed. You get more uh, detached. And that's what detached means. It doesn't mean hiding your head in the sand or moving away from anything. You stop trying to grasp everything so hard. And then you start to see how the world really is. You start to get glimpses and peaks of what this divine reality underneath is that's often expressed in the East as the Leela, the play of God. So I wouldn't worry intellectually. I mean, I, I don't want to discourage you from investigating philosophically, but um, just, I would start doing practices. If you are, have been practicing meditation, so forth, particularly moral precepts, stop trying to will yourself into sainthood. This is, uh, it's very hard to drop this image. Moral precepts are not about making yourself into a saint. They are about framing situations so that you can see something in them. You cannot will yourself into being a saint. If you continue the practice and if you observe closely, You'll see the point, for instance, of loving your neighbor. And the question, how can I love my neighbor in spite of the fact that they ill-treat me, is to miss the point. You love the neighbor because they mistreat you. Or let me put it this way. That probably didn't come out quite right. The best neighbors to try this practice on are the ones who you know are going to ill-treat you. This is why Jesus said when he was giving all these teachings about, you know, pray for those who persecute you and do good and to those who do evil to you and so forth. He said, why? Love your enemies. He says, everybody loves their friends. What does it profit you? You don't learn nearly as much from loving your friends, loving those people who will return the favor. Because that's not what brings out your attachment. That's not what exposes your self-centeredness. It's precisely in those encounters with people who mistreat you that you then see, oh, yes, I did expect a reward. And you can see it very clearly. So you see that attachment. Joseph Goldstein uh, 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 gave a wonderful example in India uh, of something that uh, here, a little attachment, he's, he's an advanced meditation teacher, that he never saw before, but now he learned to recognize through this observing closely. He was in India, and of course, there are always beggar children all over the place and so forth, and he was at the market, and he didn't have much money, and he bought a mango or something, and he bought this mango, and he turned around, and there was this little beggar boy looking at him with a hand out. And, you know, he had made a, he resolved in his own mind how much he could give and, you know, what it meant not to give and all that, something we have to do. But he thought, okay, and he handed the mango to the boy. And the boy took the mango, and the boy turned away and walked away. Not a thank you, not a smile, not a nod. And Joseph Goldstein said, what a marvelous teaching. Ah, suddenly I saw, I wanted at least a thank you, at least a little nod, at least some sign of recognition that I had done something good. But... This wonderful teacher refused to give it to me. So now I could see. 
And I could see, this is the cause of my suffering. This boy didn't do anything to cause me suffering. It's my attachment to reward to the fruit of my action. So look at the moral uh, precepts and situations in which they can be applied as experiments, classrooms, learning conditions. That's the whole point. And by the way, then they start to become fun because then they become a, uh, you become curious about them. Then the, the woman at work who will never return your smile starts to become a little bit of a challenge. You stop worrying about the woman. In fact, you don't want her to improve too quickly because, uh, you know, then she won't be there as a teacher for you. So you start, and you start trying different things. So you say, well, what is, what does it mean to love this person, you know? And you'll try and you'll fail and fail and fail, but that's how you learn. We learn from our mistakes, not from our successes. Everybody then becomes your teacher and your enemies become your greatest teachers. And then uh, finally, if you are uh, very advanced and uh, look and see if you still cling to this wish, this desire, this um, conviction that somehow the world should be just and fair. That in spite of all this, in spite of all these teachings, that somehow underneath what you're going to discover is that the world is just and fair. This is a deceptive attachment because it seems so selfless and so noble. Because I don't want the world to be just and fair for me. I want it to be just and fair for everybody. I look at the poor people in Bosnia. I, you know, and I would want it to be just and fair for them. It just really seems so noble. And the truth is, as I think uh, one of Jennifer's teachers said, a teacher at Lane Community College, by the way, not a spiritual teacher, but uh, had this lucidity that Simone Weil talks about, is the only fare there is is what you pay on the bus. <laughs> or what sets up tents here in the Lane County fairgrounds. That's the only fare there is in the world. It's a subtle attachment. It doesn't show up as easily as we can see attachments for very personal rewards. But it is a part and parcel of delusion. And it too must ultimately be surrendered. So are there any questions or any comments? What about the role of intent? Intent. Say you're going to act in the world. Should you not even set your intent and then sort of, you know, come ah. back and say, No, especially, uh, especially in the beginning of practice, intent is very important. And mystics from various traditions have said this. Um, I believe it was Meister Eckhart who said that uh, it's not uh, what you actually do that, that is important, that God looks at in that terms, but it's your intention in what you do. And uh, Mother uh, Teresa of Calcutta has always said, you know, it's uh, uh, it's not whether you can uh, feed a thousand people. If you feed one person with this, it's this with the same intention, it, it's all the same in the eyes of God. Intention is very important, but and this is what is important: to be humble when you set your intention. Say, I'm I'm going to. And I, by the way, I think it's very good, for instance, to to try to pick specific people or specific situations to work in so that you know, you say to yourself, this is my schoolroom, you know? Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you might pick somebody that you work with that you have difficulties with. And your intention is then to uh, carry out this commandment, to love thy neighbor as thyself, or to be loving and merciful and compassionate, or do you know what I mean? Whatever tradition you want to pick from. And then you go in and you try something like, you know, smiling, somebody who who's, uh, never talks to you, you may take a little initiative, start up a conversation, and, you know, they may say to you, get lost, uh, right? But, you know, it just, keep the intention here, but say, okay, what can I learn from this? 
do I feel hurt and so forth? All right, then you can look at the fruit of your action. And then you also might want to learn a practical sense. Well, maybe I should change my technique. Maybe this is too forward for this person. You see what I mean? So you have to be humble and let the means go. Let everything go. With the outcome, that's what confusion comes. With, to have your intention. Very good. Very well put. The intention is, don't confuse the intention with the outcome. Excellently. Well put. Seems like um, we attach to things and that becomes our motivation to do them. So there's a paradox then in, in being motivated to do something and yet being unattached to the outcome, which is something I have, I struggle with. And mystics would agree with you completely and say a problem is we put the cart before the horse. Let me ask you this question. Um, have you ever been at home alone or, uh, and listening to the radio or record player or something and, and you're just really feeling good, it's a beautiful spring day or a beautiful fall day and there's some lively music on and you just started dancing? Yeah. Why did you dance? What was your motive? It was hard not to. What was what was the outcome? What were you looking at? What was the what were you trying to gain from this action? I don't think I was trying to gain anything. Okay. See, this is just one example in our lives that there is a way to act in the world that it isn't based on outcome. It isn't based on attachment. It isn't based on trying to get something. It's an expression of a joy and a happiness that's already present, right? And one of the things the mystics say is we don't realize that that very happiness that we're seeking by trying to improve ourselves or change the world or get this or get that, it's already present. And, and, and ironically, it's our very turning away from that that's already present in us that makes us think we're unhappy and then sends us off in this wild goose chase to become happy. This is why Jesus also said the kingdom of God is within you. It's already there. It's already there. And it's our own activity, our own attachment, our own uh, grasping that leads us away from that. And on a spiritual path, again, you don't have to wait until you're fully enlightened. The more you give up this, uh, this way of acting that's always motivated uh, on getting something for yourself and so forth, the more you give up these attachments, oh, then the more you see, wait a minute. My happiness has nothing to do with getting stuff outside, really. And then the more that you feel that, then to, to actually tie in with Hannah's question about intention, the intention is spontaneously there. Because when you're happy, it's, you spontaneously feel compassionate, loving towards people. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be set. So eventually you even give up an intention in that sense. I have an intention. It just, just the way you dance. You said you almost couldn't help it. Well, when you discover that happiness, you almost can't help being loving and, and compassionate to people. Whether they respond or not. So you're right. We, it's very hard for us to imagine why would we act if we didn't want things, to get things, you know? And it, really it's only through your own experience that you can discover another way of acting. This, this way of acting that, that acts out of that uh, overflowing abundance of compassion, which is at the nature of the world. All myst mystics can, you know, finally say is, you know, try it. Try it. You might like it. <laughs> try it and see. Well, it's been a long morning, so um, why don't we bring the formal part of it to a close, and you are welcome to stay and uh, check out the library and have some tea in there and uh, talk and wander around. And until next time, peace to you all.